Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is great to be back on the air with you guys. I have uh, really uh, missed being on the air, but at the same time, I'm glad to be able to fit in uh, the time uh, to be able to be back on the air with you guys um, as I speak. And I'm sure many of you are beginning to wonder, when in the world would Kirk Monroe be coming back on the air? Well, the good news is that I am on the air getting ready to present to you all another podcast segment episode of The Victory with No Name, The, the Native American Defeat of the First uh, American Army by Colin G. Calloway. And we are going to start uh, a, another two-part series. Uh, we're going to start another two-part series, and this one is going to be about the United States invading Ohio. And I'm sure many of you are wondering, well, hasn't the United States already tried invading Ohio? Yes. But at the same time, uh, the game has changed. In other words, in this uh, podcast segment episode, we're going to learn about um, some actual um, combat fighting that um, on one hand does not benefit the United States government. In other words, they'll get defeated. I, I know I probably shouldn't be giving it away, but we're... But maybe to sum it up, we're going to learn about the bad, and we're going to learn a little bit about the good. Where does the good come into play? Well, there was one officer of the United States Army who did have success in uh, defeating Indians within villages that laid outside of Kekionga. And at the same time, we also have to uh, take into consideration how, how does all of this impact the speculators, or I should say the land speculators? Of course, we'll learn about that. Uh, we will also learn in this podcast segment episode, uh, the first of the uh, two-part series on the United States invades Ohio, we will learn about whether or not uh, Indian nations living in the Ohio Territory uh, supported the 1783 Treaty of Paris. Uh, we will also uh, find out whether or not... Um, or rather, I should say, we will learn as to what kind of differences there were when it came to how Indians and Americans went about waging war by 1790. We will also learn about um, we will also learn about whether or not uh, U.S. government officials, from President Washington to uh, War Secretary Henry Knox, we will uh, find out whether or not they firmly believed that the campaign behind ousting. Indians northwest of the Ohio River would be considered uh, short and swift. So those are just some of the uh, many things we will be learning about in this uh, podcast segment episode being the first of a two-part series on the United States invading Ohio. I think you all are going to be in for, um, for another round of uh, good, relevant information. But then again, I believe that has been that way ever since, I, um, ever since I've been uh, podcasting. And Hard to believe it was about three years ago this time that I first started uh, podcasting, and uh, when I look back on it, it's been a, a great uh, adventure, it's been a great investment, and I wouldn't uh, trade my time uh, by doing this. Uh, I'm very thankful that I have a lot of great listeners, I'm very thankful that I have all of you, my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners, whom have helped uh, make all of this happen, so um Hats off to you all for uh, making the dream come true, and uh, there will be many more um, adventures to look forward to uh, down the road. Uh, I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, in other words, I don't plan on leaving Anchor. 
but I don't plan on uh, stopping uh, podcasting either, too. So thank you again for uh, being such great uh, supporters. So I think it's time to get the show on the road with our first uh, leadoff question for this uh, two-part series. In the uh, Victory with No Name, or I should say the chapter of the United States uh, invading Ohio. So this time around, it's going to be a real, actual invasion. Did all Indian nations living in the Ohio Territory support the 1783 Treaty of Paris? Uh, the answer is no. This was largely in part because, the, because they did not have any connections behind what the treaty yielded. So when uh, the Treaty of Paris was taking place, it involved two parties, being the U.S. delegation and the British delegation. The Indians were left out. And I just find that very odd that they were um, left out because here the British had offered them all these protections following the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. And the British, you know, one of the promises that I recall learning about, and it is true that the British had... Uh, told the Indians that, look, you know, we'll protect you along these uh, frontier borders so that um, so that the uh, inhabitants of the 13 colonies don't start coming westward and trying to take your territory. We'll go to great lengths in protecting you all. All that's great. But, but where is this now uh, in 1783, 20 years after the Seven Years' War ended? Of course, we're, we've just ended another war. So you have to wonder, why aren't the um, Indians uh, being included in all this? Although Britain did cede land south of the Great Lakes to the United States, uh, the Paris Treaty did not include any Indian delegations from the Ohio Territory. So the Indians have every right to uh, feel as though they've been left out. Their voices were not heard. They've been excluded. The Ohio Indians now are at a point where they are willing to defend their territorial boundaries, even if it means resorting to warfare. Now, as for warfare on the American side, President Washington saw war itself with the Indians only as a last resort. So the government wants peace. They really do. The, the, the United States government would like peace. The only problem is that how to acquire peace is not on the same uh, level or on the same uh, philosophical um, approach as it is for the Indians. The Indians don't want to go to war, but they just want their ancestral lands uh, kept intact. In other words, we're not going to keep moving around just to please you all um, being the federal government. So if we have to um, if we have to go to war, then that's what we'll do. But as I recall from the previous podcast uh, episode, where uh, the Indians were willing to um, they were willing to fight till the very end. They were willing to die. They were willing to die like men. They weren't just going to hand over territory to an uh, what maybe it's fair to say as an invasive species because they still see. Um, not only is uh, the settlers as invasive, but the federal government is invasive. It got to the point where, for the Indians, in the 1780s, as this uh, new um, governing document's being created, the United States Constitution, and once it gets uh, ratified by all 13 states, the Indians are now... Um, 
they're not just having to worry about putting out one fire. They've come to see the uh, Confederation of 13 States as 13 fires. They know that um, settlers are coming from the north, the middle, and the south, and they all have an objection, or an objective, and that is to go westward. Westward into what we know as Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Illinois, Indiana. They want to go as far west as they can to establish new territory, not just so much new territory, but new uh, settlements. New settlements that over time, under the guidelines of the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, where once populations get up to 60,000, then the uh, territory uh, itself can apply for um can apply for statehood requests. So for the Indians, you know, it's not just, like I said, it's not about putting out one fire. It's about putting out 13 fires. In other words, how, you know, these fires are never going to end. We know that the government's main objective is to try to push us off our land. And these interests are not just from the inner circle of Washington, D.C., but the, but the interests and the desires are amongst everyone living in those in the 13 states whom are collaborating with the government. So think about it, folks. Just remember, it's not just one fire. It's 13 uh, fires, a barrage of fires that um, that when you put out one, another one's ready. Another um, incident is ready to uh, come into its place. Uh, what differences were there when, um, especially when it came to how Indians and Americans went about waging war by 1790? What differences do you think um, might lie uh, when it comes to how each side went about waging war? Well, the Indians over time learned to formulate dangerous style tactics of irregular warfare. And I'm sure many of you who've been with me for some time um, have learned about irregular warfare through other uh, podcast segment topics, most notably when it, when it has uh, pertained to American Revolutionary War history. Um, irre- for those of you who aren't familiar with irregular warfare, it's another uh, term for um, guerrilla combat. Irregular warfare is the opposite of traditional warfare. Irregular warfare involves smaller groups of participants um, being non-regular forces whom go about engaging in strategies from ambushes, raids, hit and run, when involving a larger and less mobile traditional military unit. So the best example I can give you is during the American Revolutionary War period, when um, most notably in the um, Southern Campaign around... um, 1778, that's when the time that the British uh, began invading the South, when they started in uh, Augusta and Savannah, Georgia, and then started working their way into uh, South Carolina. But uh, as for irregular-style fighting, uh, it became uh, better adopted uh, around 1780. And by that point in time, uh, the Patriot forces knew that if um, tactics didn't change, that uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis and his uh, forces would ultimately overrun um, the Southern Continental Army to where uh, victory would be within an easy grasp of uh, Cornwallis's uh, 
for Cornwallis's forces. So as for uh, irregular style fighting, you're ba a good example would be where, okay, you would send out a group of uh, soldiers whom are hiding in the woods, and they see a larger force making their way through the woods. A handful of those uh, soldiers whom are um, hiding, or uh, or how do I say it? they're hiding, but they are uh, very well disguised, they come out behind a tree and start firing not just from one direction, but from another direction to where, you know, you knock a couple of soldiers down. Confusion, chaos, panic sets in for this larger army. They're turning around at every direction, trying to figure out what's coming at them. The more shots that can be fired from these uh, smaller um, groups, it eventually uh, wears down the larger army to where regrouping won't just happen. It won't happen overnight if if enough uh, casualties or if, or if enough uh, losses are inflicted or not just soldiers from the larger army dying but um, getting wounded and all if any of those little things happen it will uh, greatly um, reduce the larger army's uh, means of uh, fighting not just short term but long term so basically what this uh, irregular style of uh, warfare is about is about wearing down a larger force over time to where when it comes to a major battle, they will not be um, readily um, prepared or they won't simply be ready to fight as a larger mobile uh, unit. So yes, when I uh, think of uh, this irregular style of uh, fighting, guerrilla warfare, uh, it was very um, commonly used even in the French and Indian War and in the American Revolution. Um, but going into this uh, situation that we're dealing with now in Ohio, something tells me that um, the Americans are going to do the exact opposite. The Americans uh, are still relying upon... Um, practices, or I should say procedures, from uh, colonial American days where militia and armies were uh, drilling and uh, conducting training on open uh, fields. And believe it or not, uh, traditional style uh, fighting involves, you know, larger armies that go into an open field where soldiers are pretty much lined up next to one another side by side and they engage in volleys, and when you have enough soldiers lined up next to one another, the greater the volleys uh, you can um, produce with, um, with multiple firings to where the ultimate objective is to knock down as many men 100 yards away and so forth. But Whereas with the, you know, irregular style fighting, the, um, the hunted won't always see uh, what's in front of them, being the hunter, whereas uh, in open field, both the hunter and the hunted uh, can uh, see one another from, say, 100 yards or more. Um, American forces, um, per leadership um, from above, intended to launch their um, attack within the Ohio Territory between the late summer or fall of 1790. 
What's important around late summer or fall, not just so much of the year 1790, but during this uh, seasonal um, change? How about harvest time? Harvest time for the Indians, and yes, you could say harvest time for settlers. What is a, what, you know, there are very, um, there are a lot of uh, vital staple crops, but if, if you had to pick one, what would it be? How about corn? Corn is a vital staple crop for Indians. And if the attack takes place between late summer and fall 1790, what could that, um, what could that uh, pose um, in a negative uh, sense for Indian families? If this attack took place during the harvest, then Indian families would be pressed for time in growing other crops. So if their corn, if their um, flow of corn, or if their overall harvest of corn was depleted or pretty much destroyed by the um, American army, then it, how in the world are Indians going to have, or not just some in, in, so much Indians, but how are Indian families going to have time in being able to grow other crops? They simply won't. So for the Americans, burning villages and homes is seen as um, a proper means of total disruption to Indians via their ancestral ways of living. Now, I know that sounds barbaric, folks, but this is the um, grand agenda that, um, that the U.S. Army is envisioning that, hey, look, if we can use all these scare tactics against them, They'll come to their senses. They'll they'll realize that look, they need to adhere to this um, grander government that can actually provide them a better haven, where they can uh, where they can become uh, intertwined. They can become um, affiliated. They can become um, one of us, basically. In other words, by uh, by getting uh, assimilated or assembled into European culture. They will simply become indoctrinated. As easy as that philosophy sounds, who's to say that it's really going to be able to go through? Uh, the spring of 1790, um, Governor uh, Arthur St. Clair sent Antoine Gamelin, whom was an Indian agent and trader, to meet with the western tribes of the, of the Piankashaw, Wea, and Kickapoo, regarding um, peace offers. All three of these tribes, however, um, declined to accept any um, peace offers. Matter of fact, these three peace tribes, matter of fact, these three tribes advised um, Antoine Gamelin that they needed to consult with their elder brothers. And whom would their elder brothers have been? We're not talking siblings here, folks. We're talking about other tribes. The elder brothers would have been the Miami, whom were um, whom were the lead um, Indi whom the Miami were the lead uh, Indian tribe at uh, Kekionga. Gamelin went as far as going into Kekionga. Of course, speaking of Kekionga, present-day Northeast Indiana. He went as far as speaking with Miami and Shawnee tribes people. And as great of an effort as that was for um, Antoine Gamelin, Gamelin got told by, Ma by Miami and Shawnee tribes people that they could not do anything 
without contacting their superior commander. And who would their superior commander have been, folks? How about um, the British? The British per their station in uh, Fort Detroit. So it seems like the this communication is a chain of command. For the, um, for the western tribes of the Piankashaw, the Weya, and the Kickapoo, they have to contact their um, elder brothers, the Miami. As for the Miami and the Shawnee tribes people, whom, whom do they have to go through? The British in Fort Detroit, as well as those Indians living closer to the Great Lakes. In other words, they're going to make the, the Indians are going to try to prolong this matter as much as possible to the point where where the ultimate objective is going to be that okay how far is the United States government willing to go just to get what they want in terms of land we're not going to hand them anything but at the same time if it means going to war we will do that but at the same time we're going to keep them on this um playing game so that eventually they will uh, perhaps come to the realization that um, that this is no longer worth the time nor energy to be pursuing. As for uh, Blue Jacket, the uh, Shawnee chief, he told Mr. Antoine Gamelin that the United States government could not be trusted due to past deceitful tactics. I can't blame uh, Blue Jacket there. However, Blue Jacket did make a suggestion, or I should say an offer, to Mr. Gamelin by telling him that peace itself was doable if the settlers whom were already there along the Ohio River, if those settlers could remove themselves from the Ohio River and go to the um, north side per Blue Jacket's uh, request. So in other words, those settlers that are already there need to be removed from the Ohio River's north side. And if they are removed uh, north from the north side of the Ohio River, then peace can be um, achieved. Because remember, folks, north of the Ohio River is the northwest, uh, nor what we know as northwest Ohio. And that's where the bulk of these Indian nations are. And you know, yes, the United States wants the Ohio Territory, but the heart of the Ohio Territory is in northwest Ohio, and it's which includes uh, present-day northeastern Indiana. Hostilities, or I should say acts of host, hostile tactics through uh, guerrilla-style combat fighting amongst the Indians, being the Shawnees, even the Cherokees, the Wabash tribes, these uh, acts of hostile tactics disrupted the flow, or I should say the proper flow of traffic via boats that traveled up and down the Ohio River to where U.S. government officials simply became alarmed. You know, it's one thing to harass one boat, but to start harassing multiple boats. Maybe this is a way for the Indians to tell the settlers, look, you're not welcomed here anymore. We know what you're trying to do. You're trying to build an empire, but you're trying to extend this empire onto our territory. You are trying to do whatever it takes to disrupt our way of life. You're trying to conquer nature. You're trying to conquer everything that's in your sight. 
but we know other ins and outs that you all don't know. And and if there's one thing that we are good at and you all are not is irregular style fighting. Yeah, we might knock a couple of your people down today, but over time, the more people we knock down via irregular style fighting, then it's going to become harder for your uh, current state of population to be um, replenished. As good as that uh, philosophy is, if there was one thing the Europeans were always good at doing, and this happened even before 1791, it dates back to when um, the first Europeans came into the New World, most notably when uh, the present-day uh, establishment of uh, Jamestown, Virginia, was uh, settled back in 1607. What was the one thing the English could do? They kept repopulating, okay? We lost maybe 50 or 60 people at one time, and within a year after the settlement was established, there uh, a lot of men did die from uh, disease, but another group came. Of course, there was not much luck there, but the bottom line is that the English could keep repopulating. Could Indian civilizations repopulate? No, largely in part because of disease and warfare, but most notably disease. So the bottom line is that no matter how many times the um, the Europeans, or I should say settlers, or um, those uh, from the 13 colonies or states are trying to make their way west into Ohio for the Indians, they know they can't repopulate, but it's a constant battle in trying to rid those whom are trying to uh, add on to existing uh, populations uh, within the frontier. Did the did U.S. government officials from uh, President Washington to uh, War Secretary Henry Knox firmly believe that the campaign behind ousting Indians northwest of the Ohio River would be short and swift. Oh, believe it or not, folks, yes, there were many government officials who truly believed that ousting Indians northwest of the Ohio River was going to be a piece of cake, and even Washington and uh, Henry Knox felt that same way. They placed a great deal of faith in the hands of Kentucky militiamen whom had solid records from past encounters with Indians along the frontier. Well, if you have a particular group of militiamen whom have, whom have had solid records from past encounters, well, that's great. But then you have to wonder, how long will the success last? At some point, there's going to be a setback. At some point, at some point the militiamen might be uh, dealt a huge blow to where they might have to rethink fighting altogether. President Washington advocated for joint operations uh, mission or missions involving uh, regular, or I should say U.S. Army, and militia under the helm of a federal officer. Okay, now we're going to uh, start talking about um, what leads up to um, October of 1790. But before we can get into the heart of October 1790, we've got to figure out this part here. How many men were under the command of General Josiah Harmer, whom was a former uh, Revolutionary War uh, veteran? Uh, we learned about him from some other uh, previous uh, podcast uh, segments to the series, most notably even in the prologue. Uh, but how many men were under the command of General Josiah Harmer by the very end of September 1790? Well, 
around September 30th of 1790, uh, General Harmer departed Fort Washington around uh, southern um, Ohio with 320 regulars and 1,100 militiamen whom hailed from Pennsylvania and Kentucky. So that means, folks, that General Josiah Harmer has about 1,420 troops under his uh, watch altogether. The army that was led by General Harmer was large. Okay, yeah, he got over 1,400 uh, troops uh, comprised of both uh, regulars and militiamen, but the majority are militiamen. However, the majority of the militiamen are older men, including younger-aged boys whom had no real experiences via actual combat action, and many of them of the uh, boys and men, or older men, I should say, appeared to be replacements, interim fill-ins. So you have to wonder if many of these younger age boys by 1790 are really between, or at, probably at best maybe 15 years old. And if that's the case, they would have been born more than likely between 1774, 1775, um, just before and say right after when uh, shots were fired around the world at Lexington and Concord. That's not to say, though, that a 15 year old you know, boy would have experience and would have already attained experience in um, using a rifle or a musket for uh, hunting purposes. I mean, after all, when a young uh, child reaches the age of 10, he or she does technically become an adult, given back then that uh, life expectancy wasn't high. But at the same time, we have to be remembered, folks, that this army is not the same kind of army that would have been seen in the, in the days of the American Revolutionary War, that's not to say that even in the early days of the American Revolutionary War that we um, perhaps had the best um, had the best uh, units of men fighting. But in the post-revolutionary war era, in terms of uh, maintaining an army and trying to keep people uh, committed to um, to uh, preserving a standing army, even in a time of peace, obviously it has been a challenge onto itself. Uh, what were General Josiah Harmer's exact orders? Well, to me, it has to do with obviously um, defeating the Indians at uh, Kekionga, but it's not so much Kekionga, but it's really a mission behind flat out destroying all Miami tribal villages along the Maumee River, which included killing any Indians whom stood in the way. Or really more so in uh, General Harmer's way. Basically, this is an approach that says, look, it's either my way or, uh, or the doorway, or it's my way or nobody else's way. Whereas General Harmer marched his forces eastward, Major Hamtramck, <laughs> I know it sounds like a... Um, Odd last name, but it's spelled H-A-M-T-R-A-M-C-K, Hamtramck. He uh, departed from Vincennes along the lower uh, Wabash with 300 regulars and 300 Kentucky militiamen attacking uh, the Miami uh, Territory from the west. Secretary um, of War Henry Knox went as far as advising Northwest Territory Governor Arthur St. Clair 
to inform the British commander at Detroit, or at Detroit, rather, that the campaign, uh, that this upcoming campaign was geared towards hostile Indians. Okay, well, when you say hostile Indians, that's a bit vague onto itself. So, if, if you are um, the Northwest Territory Governor Arthur St. Clair and you are wanting to inform the British commander at Fort Detroit that an upcoming campaign which is going to take place is only going to be geared towards hostile Indian tribes, do you think that uh, British commander is going to get fooled by any of this? No. The British lead post commander pretended he was unconcerned. Okay, yeah, he's going to have to pretend as though he's unconcerned when, in fact, he's the opposite. He is concerned. He's just going to go along with this, but he's going to be more like a decoy, if you ask me. So he pretended to be unconcerned via a reply letter, but at the same time, the uh, lead post commander sent messages advising British traders within the Miami villages of impending dangers and assuring Indians were fully prepared. In other words, whether you're neutral or, uh, towards another Indian nation or whether you might have some oppositions based upon all these, um, all these uh, United States government um, temptations, we need to put our temptations aside. We need to put our uh, hostilities aside. We've got to uh, take up arms against the government so that, so that these ancestral lands do get preserved. October 11, 1790, Major Hamtrunk, or I should say Major John Hamtrunk, and his uh, 600-man force arrived at an abandoned uh, Piankashaw village where they burned all lodgings and crops only uh, to return home afterwards. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, why did this guy um, and his uh, forces return home afterwards when there probably did appear to be some unfinished uh, business? You know, I'm uh, perplexed by that as well. But apparently it was not the first time he had done it. Of course, if you've burned um, lodgings and crops, wouldn't you want to... Um, carry on this fight elsewhere, perhaps lure a trap. I mean, you've got some momentum to your advantage, but at the same time, does uh, this general, is he willing to risk losing men if he's not familiar with the territory? Well, you would think, for one, that he would have gotten a grasp with regards to a familiarity, but two, if you're afraid to risk losing men, which he probably was, then how are you going to replace those men that have that are wounded or killed? I mean, there's a lot of unknown logistics that that obviously have not been able to be figured out within a short period of time. Well, October seventeenth, seventeen ninety, almost a week later, General Josiah Harmer's forces arrived at Kekiyanga with the grand mission of destroying the Miami Indian. Nation village with a motto, you know, of one that would probably be the following not leave anything behind. In other words, annihilate everything in the villages. A little barbaric to say the least, but that's 
sadly, the way um, a lot of um, issues or uh, matters at stake were were um, dealt with. I mean, it happened even in the American Revolutionary War in uh, upstate New York, where um, the Iroquois Nation um, tribes, some of the uh, tribes of the Six Nations had their villages pretty much uh, wiped out, all because they took up sides with the British in the war. Uh, four of the uh, Six Nations sided with the uh, British, the other two sided with the Americans. So you talk about a huge uh, split um, in the uh, Iroquois Nation, that, uh, or the Six Nation uh, tribe, that... Um, how do I say it, that that split was so tense that it never really was able to regain um, true 100% conformity uh, prior to um, war breaking out between um, Britain and her uh, subjects, the 13 colonies. So, yes, this grand mission was to destroy the entire Miami Indian Nation village. You don't leave anything behind. October 18th, General Harmer's uh, forces scat were scattered about by or they rather, I should say, scattered about by going into outlying villages along the Miami and St. Joseph Rivers, where they partook in ransacking to killing a few Indians. And both sides were uh, very notorious at killing one another. Um, October uh, 19th of 1790, uh, a colonel by the name of John Harden and a force of 300 men um, embarked in chase of Indians only to be met with an ambush surprise attack. So basically what I'm providing you all right here is just a basic timeline of events that um, lead up to what uh, unravels at Kekianga before the month of October ends in 1790. On October 21st, uh, 1790, General Harmer began a return march to Kekianga but he split his force, which resulted in militiamen getting lured into a trap. Okay, getting lured into a trap, folks. The militiamen think they've got a home run. But what they don't realize is that the Indians have outsmarted them, folks. The Indians are hiding. And, when, and by hiding, they're going to be able to launch a surprise attack that will not only just wound or kill, say, 25 militiamen, we could be talking about in the hundreds. It's like irregular-style fighting. It's almost like a version of a Blitzkrieg, you know, coming at such lightning force that a larger um, army just doesn't have the time to um, sit back, or not so much sit back, but they don't have the time to take in and realize, oh, my gosh, we are getting hit from all different angles. How are we going to regroup? How are we going to do this and that? Uh, to regain our numbers, it's everything's just coming at them at once, not just from one direction but multiple directions. So, so yes, these uh, a large number of militiamen get lured into a trap where Indians killed large numbers of reg of regulars at Kekianga, and at the end, about just over uh, 200. I'm going to say at least 260 of uh, General Josiah Harmer's. Um, men were either killed or wounded. 260 out of, like, say, 1,400-something. Now, I don't know if all 1,400 were there, because you never know. You could have had some desertions, men whom were simply not able to fight because of illness. But 
really uh, just shy of 260 uh, men are either killed or wounded. It's not like you can call up and say, I need to get another 500 men in here immediately. Of course, you know, we don't have phones back then. So finding replacements for these um for these um, for those whom have been killed and wounded is going to take some time. And in the midst of the Indian villages getting burnt around Kekianga, Indians went about rebuilding their homes, but did so by relocating to safer locations, most notably within an area called the Glaise or the Aglaise River or the Oglaise River. Oglaise um the people, I'm sure some of you are wondering, you know, I've never heard of um, Oglaise before, spelled A-U-G-L-A-I-Z-E. What it means is, is a uh, river of great clay. The Oglaise was a uh, tributary, being a river, uh, anytime we hear tributary, think of a river that flows into a larger body of water. So the Oglaise was a was a 113-mile uh, river that uh, flowed into a larger body, being that of the Maumee River, uh, just on the outskirts of uh, present-day Toledo. For Josiah Harmer, his campaign was seen as a huge blow. Um, you know, bad enough he's lost over 200 men, but it's a huge blow to land speculators whom had envisioned great hopes, levels of success. They, too, were envisioning a grand slam out of the park. But it just didn't happen like that, folks. As for the start of uh, the new year, 1791, in January of that year, a party of uh, Wyandotte and Delaware Indian nations attacked a new dwelling on the east slope of the Muskinigam River, killing 11 men one woman and two children. Fourteen people, folks, died um, very barbaric in a very barbaric uh, way. But here again, no matter how no matter how um, deeply invested the United States government is in trying to get uh, people to go westward, we're still struggling to protect our borders. And if we can't protect our borders then why in the world should we be trying to wage war on the frontier with the Indians? It just, you know, that to me just doesn't make any sense. Of course, yes, it's all trial and error, but then you have to think to yourself, okay, well, what expense? You've lost over 200 men. Should you, maybe you should throw in the towel and rethink uh, your strategies and come up with a treaty that pretty much says, okay, we won't invade your territory anymore. We'll let you have your ancestral land with the hopes of maybe getting territory east and uh, south or southeast of uh, what we know as uh, northwest Ohio. All wishful thinking, but, but that's the mindset. Uh, what's significant about March 3rd, 1791? So we have to think now, how is Congress, along with the U.S. government, how are they going to find, go about implementing strategies in the aftermath of what happened in October of 1790 at Kekionga? So what's significant about March 3, 1791? Congress established into law an act creating the 2nd Regiment to the military establishment of the United States, enhancing additional Preparations for Protection of Frontier Settlements, or I should say territories, lands. 
Okay, so we've taken a step in a better direction now. The bigger question is, will the legislation that we've passed, will that ultimately um, fix the debacle that happened five months before? Only time will tell. This law that uh, comes into play approved the 2nd Regiment, where it comprised of 912 men, to giving uh, the U.S. President, being George Washington, the power to impose, or I should say draft, anywhere up around 2,000 troops, including a unit of militia for up to six months. Not bad, uh, considering you know just how uh, young our republic is at this time. But the bigger question is, is that yes, you can take these steps, but if it doesn't result in success, then how can the laws, how can this new law, have any uh, true relevancy, you know, true meaning? March fourth of seventeen ninety one, President Washington chose Arthur St. Clair, the Northwest Territory Governor and becoming the new major general to command the army. So he is now taking the place of Josiah Harmer. St. Clair, uh, not only does he replace Josiah Harmer, but the 2,000 levies, or I should say the troops, were to be raised from multiple states. Once the levels were raised, the troops were to gather at Fort Pitt in present-day Pittsburgh, PA, and then proceed downriver to uh, Fort Washington and prepare, or I should say, begin the new campaign. St. Clair was supposed to have 3,000 men. Uh, did War Secretary Henry Knox want peace with the Indians? He did. But for Knox, however, war itself had to occur first, then proceed afterwards with treaties. So yes, I, I want peace, but there has to be a war first before any kind of real peace, real true peace, can be uh, established. Uh, the main objective for uh, St. Clair, besides uh, troops reaching Kekionga, was to construct a permanent uh, fort stationed uh, smack dab in the center of all Miami villages. For St. Clair, uh, the purpose of the um, permanent fort, or even that of the government, was to help better protect Ohio frontier or to protect the Ohio frontier against Indian raids or attacks. War Secretary Knox was very convinced that this army, the size of the army, under um, Ar General Arthur St. Clair, would prevail. He really did. He, just had, he truly believed that, okay, based upon the successes of the Kentucky militia, based upon what we have now, given that we've uh, established some new legislation we're gonna, that's going to improve the size of our of the uh, numbers based upon what they were previously. All of this is going to serve as a big deterrent in getting the Indians to come to their senses and realize that, uh, that they should be uh, paying more respect to the government and not making the government's life uh, miserable. But <laughs> little did um, War, Secretary, War Secretary Henry Knox realize that... Um, Little did he um, realize that uh, the opposite, that the exact opposite would unfold, and that Indian tactics behind irregular style of fighting far outweighed anything that the uh, American army would be um, would already have um, to its side, 
So in other words, we don't really know what's coming at us. We think we do, but we really don't. Uh, which Indian nation did the uh, United States government continue working through in regards to uh, the current situation northwest of the Ohio River? The Indian nation uh, that the U.S. government continued working with, folks, was the uh, Six Nations. Uh, the Six Nations from New York State being uh, the uh, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, uh, Canandaigua, and uh, Tuscarora. Yeah, uh, yeah, Seneca, uh, Onondaga, Oneida, uh, Tuscarora, uh, Cayuga, and uh, yeah, the uh, the Six Nations. Yes, and so the uh, Six Nations, um, and the reason why the U.S. government uh, continued to work with the uh, Six Nations was uh, it, it dated back to 1788 when the Ohio Company gave um, Seneca Chief Corn Planter. Um, one square mile of land as a result of his service to the United States, or I should say to the uh, U.S. government. The U.S. government sought to uh, use Corn Planter as a diplomat for the Western tribes. Corn Planter agreed to go on a peace mission to the Miami and Wabash villages. And I do apologize if I may have uh, forgotten one of the... Um, tribes of the uh, six nation um, so I, I will admit I do have um, I, it's okay to have a lapse there uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Colonel Thomas uh, Proctor whom was a Revolutionary War artillery officer he was assigned to a company corn planter Proctor um, agreed to carry along Knox's instructions regarding peace including the opposite if, um, if peace uh, was not adhered to However, um, Colonel uh, Proctor did go to, um, he did go westward to the Miami towns, but Corn Planter stayed home. And I'm not sure why he stayed home, but what I do know is that, um, is that plans for peace did hit a stalemate when Colonel Proctor got denied by a British uh, commander at Fort Niagara to sail his party across Lake Erie. Could it have been that if Corn Planter had gone, that his presence might have posed as a red flag to the British uh, commander? Uh, perhaps so. After all, the British uh, were, you know, claiming to look after the Indians. But then we have to wonder, as time goes along, are things going to change to where they might not be looking after the Indians when it's all said and done with? But but at this time, one does have to wonder if Corn Planter's presence would have been seen as a threat to uh, the Indians along the western uh, frontier, whom would have, uh, whom in return would have viewed Corn Planter as someone as a traitor. In other words, willing to take sides with um, with the government whose uh, focus was on seizing everything, even if it meant um, taking away anything that uh, was considered ancestral. Um, who is uh, Charles Scott? I'm sure many of you, many of you all, don't probably know who Charles Scott is, and that's fine. But he's a, a brigadier general, whom has a, a unique history. Nonetheless, he served in the Revolutionary War. He was assigned to lead the Kentucky militia around May 10th of 1791 by taking them into the Weah tribe towns along the Wabash River. He was a native of Virginia. 
He fought during the Seven Years' War, uh, a.k.a. French and Indian. He survived the debacle in July of 1755 at Monongahela, a.k.a. Braddock's Defeat, where uh, French and Indian forces um, pretty much slaughtered um, General uh, Edward Braddock's uh, British troops, which were well over a thousand in number. Braddock had been advised by other Indians nearby, Indian tribes nearby, that he needed to uh, change his ways of, um, of uh, fighting. He needed to change his ways of, um, of engaging an enemy, but um, Braddock did not um, adhere to what the Indians provided him with, and he paid a hefty price for it. Uh, General Braddock was killed, along with scores of other troops, only a handful survived, one of them being uh, Mr. Charles Scott, but another fellow survived, whom was uh, a fellow by the, a 23-year-old named George Washington. He was able to regroup what was left of the survivors and, um, and lead them out of harm's way to um, higher ground. So Charles Scott uh, obviously benefited from uh, George Washington's uh, guidance in the midst of a terrible uh, debacle along the frontier during the uh, early years of the Seven Years' War. So, um, for uh, Charles Scott, what I found to be very uh, powerful and yet sad was that he lost one of his sons to, and uh, he lost one of his sons uh, via an Indian brutality attack along the uh, Kentucky River, and in the spring of 1787, um, he lost another son whom died during uh, General Harmer's uh, failed attempt at Kekionga. So the death of his sons pretty much propels uh, Brigadier General Scott to lead a war into Indian territory. He started St. Clair's campaign in late May of 1790, where he led 800 Kentucky militiamen across the Ohio River and into Indian villages along the Wabash Valley. And the results did go into Scott's favor, where he noted, or I should say confirmed, uh, 32 Indians killed to five U.S. troops wounded. He even went as far as recording uh, a total number of Indian prisoners of war, which was unheard of, uh, at uh, 41. He freed Indians of not-so-good shape uh, by allowing them to carry messages to tribes whom were not involved in this um, particular uh, conflict along the Wabash Valley. Some Indians even, or I should say some Indian warriors arrived to Fort Washington and visited uh, captured family members. Scott's mission uh, proved so successful that two villages of Oyatanon and Kethtepekanuk were badly destroyed where the Wea Miami groups got further isolated from uh, from uh, chief, or I should say head tribal leadership at Kekionga. So two villages, folks, that are so badly destroyed that that their whomever has survived is uh, for, is very isolated from the uh, main um, establishment in the heart of uh, Kekionga uh, to the northeast in uh, present day uh, Fort, like present day Fort Wayne, Indiana. Well. Given what's happened um, with the success that Brigadier General Scott has now attained, I think it's fair to say that land speculators can breathe a sigh of relief. But most land speculators, though, know that 
despite this victory, it's still not enough to overcome what happened in October of 1790. Because for the land speculators, they're hungry. They want to uh, be able to get westward as soon as possible, but the only way it's going to happen is by, um, is by seeing to it that the Indians come to every peace agreement term there is, and by doing so, that means that the land that these land speculators acquire will have immense value. Immense value because it was it, it's prime land. Both sides are competing for this land. You know, the Indians are trying to preserve the land. The Indian, the the settlers and the government, they want to acquire it, and it's going to come at a very bad expense. So, for Manasseh Cutler, whom we learned about from a previous podcast episode. He was very pleased, or I should say delighted, about Brigadier General Charles Scott's success and hoped, like other land speculators, that Arthur St. Clair's mission would be as promising. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment episode, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you guys next time. And when I'm on the air again next, we will talk about uh, part two of two with the United States invading Ohio. And uh, one of the things we will talk about in the second part uh, to this uh, series, or the the second part of the two-part series, is um, how St. Clair's uh, campaign proceeded. In other words, did it proceed on time or did it proceed late, and why so? Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.